0: If you would, open your Bibles, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter (laughs) 2. About a month ago, we jumped into a series that centers on the theology of the Protestant Reformation. Now this year marks, 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the, uh, the day, October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany. And for, it, it, it changed uh, Christendom, uh, the trajectory of Christendom. I provided a historical overview of the Reformation in the, our first week, I think it was July 23rd, and I used Jude and his call to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints... We looked at that passage and used the Reformation as an extended illustration of, of that passage. These were men that were committed to the, the authority of Scripture and the application of God's Word in their own lives and in the life of the church. Then Larry followed that up by going to Second Timothy 3. And we looked at our, our first sola. And he laid the groundwork for the biblical doctrine of, of Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. As Christians and as a church we build upon Scripture alone as the authority of our life and faith. Scripture is sufficient for us. It's all that we need. It's profitable to us. It does us good. And it's true. It never fails. There's, there's not one word that is, is wrong, that's not inspired, that's not inerrant in the Word of God. So we are a people of, of Scripture alone. Then a couple weeks ago, we turned to the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans and looked at the biblical idea of justification by faith justification by faith alone. And this doctrine really set the tone for the Reformation. Our faith, we said, looks to Christ and lays hold of his work. Faith is the work of the Holy Spirit by which we cling to Christ. And this morning we turn to a third sola of the Reformation, grace alone. And uh, before we go any further, let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you with hearts hearts full as we have already rejoiced in and reflected on uh, the goodness of the grace you've shown us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, though we were once far off, you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. And it's in this reality that we rejoice. Thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and you speak to us today through your word. Lord, help me to not be a hindrance or a distraction to these wonderful brothers and sisters from encountering you in your word. May our our ears be ready to hear and our hearts be soft to be conformed to your word. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Our church is named Grace Church. And it's named Grace Church for a reason. And I hope that as we reflect on this doctrine, we we will have even more more that informs the name of our church, Grace Church. It's not just some cute Christian phrase we call ourselves Grace Church just for fun. No, Grace Church, grace is what defines us as Christians. We are all about grace and grace alone. And that's what we sang about earlier this morning. And We sang this song, Grace and Grace Alone. I will run this race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. We have grace at the start, grace Through the middle, grace to the end. Grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace without qualification. We are all about grace. And grace was the central cry of the Reformation. And it's still the central cry for us today. Now as we dive in, let me tell you where we're going to be going. I'm going to start by providing just a brief historical context. And then we'll look at, so looking at the Reformation, and then we're going to look at Ephesians 2 and unpack what the Reformers recovered from the biblical teaching on grace. And as we go, I'm just going to make three simple points. Three simple points. Our problem, God's solution, and our response. So let's uh, read this passage together and then we'll, we'll continue on. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, Thanks be to God for his word. Now, throughout the history of the church leading up to the Reformation of the 16th century, grace took a central place. People talked about grace. Uh, when Luther was a monk prior to hanging his 95 theses, just a couple years before, he was teaching students the Bible, and he spent time preaching, teaching through Romans. And he taught that salvation is by grace. This, these are Luther's words then. Not because of our merits, but given out of the pure mercy of of the promising God. And when Luther said this, nobody in the Catholic Church declared him a heretic. No one corrected him. No conflict was created. Why? Because Roman Catholicism taught that salvation is by grace. So, so what's the big deal? The entire Reformation hinged on the word that was missing there, alone. Alone. At the time of the Reformation, grace played this massive role in Roman Catholicism. Grace is what saved the Christian and worked in the Christian. The thinking would go like this. We have this problem, sin. We have this spiritual lethargy, this spiritual laziness. We don't do what we ought to do. And so we need, we need a kick in the pants. We need some energy, some motivation. So God gives us grace. One, one author likened it to a spiritual Red Bull. God gives us this spiritual Red Bull or that 3 p.m. espresso and grace comes in and it, it gives us the prick that we need to be holy. It's grace working with us that makes us loved by God. That's how grace was, was taught and thought of. Grace was thought of primarily as a thing to be dispensed to help us perform. But as Luther found, even with all this grace being given out and, and seized upon and ingested, he still felt like a failure. He did not fully Understand grace. That's a little bit of the. That's the context of the Reformation. That's how grace was viewed. Grace, like I said, it's the bread and butter of this church. Spend any amount of time with us on a Sunday morning, and you will hear lots and lots of talk about grace. Even this morning, our songs were marked by singing about grace. I mentioned grace alone. We also sang "Grace and Peace." Oh, how can this be for lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless, the least? So in spite of our state, God has shown us grace. But too often, grace isn't that amazing to us. We can seem to take it for granted as we navigate our days. And we can also tend to to minimize it by thinking of it as maybe that five-hour energy. Just give me grace, Lord. Just give me grace to get through this. But let not that be the case for us. Let us be amazed at grace. Sinclair Ferguson here says this, Being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. The growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes. My hope for us this morning as we look at this text and reflect on grace is that we be amazed once again. Let us be astonished and amazed at the grace of God. Now, John Calvin, he, he famously begins his institutes with this statement. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So we must know God and ourselves, but far too often we live as if we don't understand either. We either think of ourselves as too great and, or God is too small, or both, actually, normally it's both. God is too great. Us is as I mean. God is too small. Us is too great. Did I even say that right the first time? All right. We think of ourselves as too great, and God is much too small. The doctrine of grace alone it aims to correct this area error to make it make us think rightly. In grace, we find salvation. In grace, we find freedom and joy and human flourishing. Grace is the key to the Christian life. So in order to understand grace, let's look at number one, our problem. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Our problem, our sin, sin makes us dead. We are dead in sin. One pastor writes this, dead men tell no tales, nor do they do anything else. If the human existential and religious problem is death then only an external action on the part of someone more powerful than death can actually resolve the difficulty. We are dead in our sin. Second, we are controlled by sin. So we're dead in sin. We're controlled by sin. We have darkened minds and hearts. We follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. So the world you see there, you see the devil, the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We've got the world, our flesh, and the devil all right there. One commentator points out that it is important to recognize that this spiritual deadness that we have is caused by trespasses and sins, as well as characterized by them. So our sin both causes it and it characterizes it. And we are morally captive. So with the world, we follow the course of this world. Those who are morally captive to the world, they're squeezed into the world's mold. My kids, they like to play with Play-Doh. Mom and dad don't really like them to play with Play-Doh, but they like to it. And they've got some molds they squeeze the Play-Doh into. I think Knox's favorite is his Transformers, Optimus Prime. And he'll squeeze that ball of Play-Doh into the form of Optimus Prime. That's what the world does to us. We follow the course of this world. We're forced into certain ways of thinking and believing and ap- acting, which represents the world's conventional wisdom. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd- Lloyd-Jones, he says this to be, follow the course of this world. He says, people think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their favorite newspaper, whether the left or the right. Their very appearance is controlled by the world in its changing fashions. They all conform. It must be done. They dare not disobey. They are afraid of the consequences. This is is us apart from God. We are dead in our sin, captive to the world, the devil, and our flesh. We are also condemned by our sin. We are children of wrath, as verse 3 says. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why? Because of our sin but more so because of who God is. Now, this passage doesn't, doesn't give us a picture of, of God's holy character, but let me just go there real quick because it helps us understand our big problem. So God is holy. God is holy. He is entirely other than us. His is moral perfection and glory. And there is an infinite separation Now, this is not infinite, but there is an infinite separation between God and all that he has created because he is holy. Not only is God holy, but God is just. God is the judge of all the earth, condemning the sinful and vindicating the innocent. In order for God to be God, he must be just and he must punish sin. I heard one pastor describe God's justice by saying that God doesn't grade on a curve. We can't place our hope in, well, you know what, I'm a lot better than my neighbor. Or I'm, I don't do all the other things that all my friends have done. God doesn't grade on a curve. His, his standard for morality is based on His holiness, not, not our relative standing. He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Comparing yourself to others excusing your wrong behavior or rationalizing in a way, gets us nowhere. God's judgments are based on his holiness. So God is holy, God is just, and God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God rules completely over all things. All, everything, nothing, absolutely nothing falls outside of the sovereign prerogative of God. God. I love the way Isaiah... It's actually terrifying the way Isaiah lays this out in chapter 45. God speaking through Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Isaiah goes on, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. There is no doubt about the sovereignty of God. So when it comes to our problem, yes, our problem is sin, but really God is our great problem. He is holy, He is just, and He is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning and powerful. And we are without excuse before Him. We are without hope before Him. God judges sin by a holy standard that we cannot measure up to. He rules with an authority that we cannot escape. We don't need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from God. And we forget this far too often. We need to be saved from God. But here we come to God's glorious solution. This is This Number two, God's solution, grace. Grace. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. H. B. Charles Jr., one of my favorite preachers, he said this, God is the sinner's problem, but the sinner's problem intervened to become the sinner's solution. What God required, God provided. Paul doesn't write, but we. He doesn't get to that point, but we, or but God working with us. No, he writes, but God. But God. Grace is God's intervening work for us and in us. It's God stepping into our deadness and changing everything. Grace is God stepping into our dead state and changing everything. Now important implication, an important implication of this, is that grace is not some attribute of God, like we think of God being all-powerful, or God being all-wise, or God being holy. Grace is entirely connected to the fall, because grace is what happens when God's character, so all of his attributes, when they're applied to our failure. Pastor Carl Truman, and professor, he writes this, "...a loving God, faced with the rebellion of his creatures, desires to bring them back into communion with himself." Yet His holiness cannot simply allow their sin to pass without response. For if God allows our unholy rejection of Him to stand, He is contradicting His own holy nature. The answer is grace. Action on God's part, motivated by love and shaped by holiness, which takes account of the seriousness of sin, yet brings sinners back into communion with Him. In short, if the world did not exist and had never fallen, God could not be said to be gracious. If the world did not exist and had never fallen, God could not be said to be gracious. Grace is the necessary response to the tragedy of the fall. Grace is necessary because the world is not as it should be. And grace is not some ambiguous theological category or some sentimental feeling that God has. God's grace is how God responds in history, in real time to the tragedy of a fallen world. The story of the Bible is a story of grace. So if we go back to the beginning, go back to the garden, Adam and Eve. God creates them and He places them in this garden and they have everything, everything they need. Full satisfaction and fellowship with God. But you know how it goes. The serpent comes, tempts Eve. Eve takes a bite of that fruit. She gives it to Adam. Adam takes a bite of the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And after eating of the fruit, the first thing they attempt to do, the very first thing they do, is to cover themselves with leaves, with fig leaves. They attempt to cover themselves with leaves. Then when they hear God walking in the garden, they attempt to hide from God. So they cover themselves with leaves, they hide from God, and God calls to them. And Adam compounds his sin. He makes himself even to be more of a fool. And then we know God places a curse on the serpent. God places a curse on Eve. God places a curse on Adam. And nothing will ever be the same. But something else happens right before God banishes them from the garden. I think it's it's easy to overlook. Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. For all of the wrath of God towards Adam and Eve because of their sin... They had never seen death nor experienced the lifeblood running out of an animal. But God, in his grace, he kills animals and clothes them with their skin. This was grace, God's response to the tragedy of the fall. Can you imagine what that experience must have been like for them? God chooses to replace Adam and Eve's shoddy and fragile fig leaves by slaughtering animals and clothing them with the animal skins. Carl Truman, he writes, Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God, no doubt. But the picture of biblical grace that emerges right here in the opening page of the Bible is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. And this is grace. And we see this theme again and again in Scripture. God's grace in the form of sacrifice. God's grace it costs a great deal. There is great cost associated with his grace. It's not just God looking the other way when we sin. That is not what grace is. God has to do something about it because he is holy, he is just, he is sovereign. In the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system emerge. But this wasn't man's idea. This was God's idea. Moses wasn't sitting around trying to figure out everything that he could think of to appease God. Hey, I know, let's kill some animals. That'll make God happy. No, God told his people in exact terms what they should do to be at peace with him. It was God's initiative, not man's. This highlights God's gracious activity. The story of the Bible is a story of grace. Ultimately, God's response to a fallen world, all this points to, is a person. The God-man. Grace is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So grace is not a thing as the Roman Catholic Church holds it to be. Grace is Jesus Christ. You don't get grace when you're saved and then moved on, move on to something else. Grace isn't just God's kindness to help us. It's God's work to save us by giving us Himself. We're going to camp out on this point for a, for a few moments. Grace is God's work to save us by giving us Himself. Tim Chester and Mike Reeves. They write, "There is no such thing as grace. There is only Christ, who is the blessing of God, freely given to us." Now, sorry, Larry, because I am going to. I mean, you're, we're going to in Christ alone next, and so there's going to be some some overlap here. Not much, right? Oh, not much though. Not much. I'll leave you plenty of room. We cannot exhaust the riches of His grace in Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And in Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace and the freeness of grace. So Catholic teaching would hold that that we get grace, but then we can get something better, something more, and that might be Christ. Or they pray, Hail Mary, full of grace. Grace is something separate from who God is. We must always guard against separating Jesus Christ from the benefits that we receive from the gospel, as if there exists some kind of separation between them. Sinclair Ferguson, he writes, the benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. The benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. So these benefits that I'm talking about, salvation and regeneration and adoption and glorification, these are benefits of the gospel. The grace that we receive is Christ. You can't separate them from Christ. In other words, we cannot have grace or any other blessing apart from having Christ. The great danger in separating the benefits of the gospel from Christ is that we can start to think that we have these things In ourselves. But these things are not in us. They are in Christ. For example, listen to Paul write to the Ephesians in chapter 1. Listen for all the phrases of in Christ and in Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also have received the gospel of your salvation. In Paul's 13 letters, he uses the designation in him over 100 times. We are in Christ. It's a pretty significant amount. If the benefits of the gospel were somehow something that we possess, that gives us something to boast in. Then we have played a part in our salvation, in our justification, in our right standing before God. But this flies in the face of biblical teaching. I love the hymn. I think it's how deep the Father's love. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. and that be our cry as well. Amen. We can have no benefit from the gospel apart from having Christ Himself. We don't get the benefits of the gospel through Christ. It's not like Christ is some channel by which now we receive benefits. We receive these things in Christ. He is the benefit of the gospel that we receive. There's not something else that we have to proclaim. There's not something else that we have to hope in. There's not something else that will give us peace. It is only Christ. And He is all that we need. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, he says, when we are in Him, we possess Christ Himself. All spiritual blessings are ours immediately and simultaneously in Him. If we are in Christ, all blessings are ours. Really. If we are in Christ, all blessings are ours. Really. So if we separate God's gracious response in Christ to our sin, then we've missed the whole point. God responds to our tragic state in Christ. Grace in Christ is His solution. So while the Roman Catholic Church would have agreed that grace was absolutely necessary for salvation... The issue lied in whether or not it was sufficient. Is grace really all that we need? And the reformers, they definitively clear, yes, yes, grace is all we need. We are saved by grace alone. So what does grace do? We've already touched on it, but Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he showed us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive. Grace makes us alive. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our sin. There's no category for kind of dead with deadness. You are dead or you aren't dead. And dead people, they can't take initiative for themselves. They can't ask for help. They can't claim any standing. They can't say, well, I mean, I can do this. No, they're dead. They can't do anything. No brain activity, no blood flow. No breath in their lungs. In our deadness, a mere pep talk or a bit of life coaching, it's not going to help us. We need resurrection. And that has to come from outside of us. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, he could not save himself. He could not rouse himself from the tomb. He could not resuscitate his heart and lungs. And he lay in that tomb for days, dead, completely dead. But Jesus came. Jesus came, and he cried out, Lazarus, come out. And that dead body, that dead body laying dead in the tomb, no brain activity, no breath in his lungs, no blood coursing his veins. One author phrases it, then his hand twitched. Life. Life and he comes out and I always think it's funny. Lazarus comes out and he's coming out of deadness. Which is kind of crazy, but he's I mean he's all wrapped up. He needs some help getting undone, so he gets help getting undone. That is the power of God. Lazarus gives us a picture of God's grace in action. This is what God does to the sinner. Grace makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Grace also raises us up with Him. So this resurrection life that Jesus Christ had as He rose from the grave, this is our life. So we have new life in Him. And we have glorification in Him. We have been seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at that word, immeasurable. Like you can't measure it. Immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness we kind of have the sense that like, I mean, we'll, we've got it all. I've grasped it all. Maybe I'll learn a little bit more next year. But that is not the case with God's grace. We can't exhaust it. His grace is far too glorious, far too immeasurable for us to be able to contain. So grace makes us alive and grace saves us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace, by grace you have been saved. Through faith, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As many or all of you know, I grew up in a home with wonderful parents who have loved and served God passionately and faithfully. And throughout my childhood, I heard again and again and again and again this, this truth, this gospel truth, that I can only have salvation in Christ. I heard it, but I did not know it. While the light shone bright in my home and in my church and in all around me, I was blind and I could not see. But at some point in time, around 15 or 16, that all changed. Not only did I begin to understand the gravity of my sin, but my eyes were opened to the glorious grace of Christ. Namely, that He came as our substitute. Isaiah puts it this way, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. He says, The great gulf of Jesus' loving self-sacrifice can swallow up the mountains of our sin. All of them. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, as John Newton penned. For the sake of the infinite good of this one representative man, the Lord may well look with favor upon other men, however unworthy they may be in and of themselves. It was a miracle of miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ should stand in our stead and bear that we might never bear His Father's righteous ire. But He has done so. It is finished. God will spare the sinner because He did not spare His Son. God can pass by your transgressions because He laid those transgressions upon His only begotten Son nearly 2,000 years ago. If you believe in Jesus, then your sins were carried away by Him who was the scapegoat for his people. Charles Wesley penned it this way, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. We were dead in our sin. That's all of us. Dead in our sin. But thine eye, his eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is the power of grace that saves and this grace that saves, that makes us alive, this grace is a gift. It's a gift. For grace to truly be grace, we must recognize that grace is a gift. And we must recognize that as a gift, God chooses whom he saves. We just looked a little bit ago at Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 and 5 there, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You read through the Bible and time and time and time again you see God at work choosing His people. I was just reading this past week in Genesis. And you come to Genesis chapter, the end of chapter 11, you're introduced to this this family and this guy named Abram. And then in Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram hasn't done anything. Now the Lord said to Abram, go to your country and your kindred go out of your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What did Abram do? He worshiped the moon. That's what he did. And, and God chooses him to be a blessing to all people. This was woven into the fabric of God's chosen people. They are to be reminded that they are chosen by God. It's not not what they do. It's what God has done. Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It's like, put him down a little bit lower. It's not because you're more, but you are the fewest. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, we shall never feel persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the free mercy of God as its fountain until we are made acquainted with his eternal election. The grace of God being illustrated by the contrast that he does not adopt all promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to other. This is a profound truth. It's a difficult truth. But it's one that, that we must praise God for because that's what his word tells us to do. If we read through Romans, you get to Romans 9. Paul talks about God's sovereign choice. He points to Jacob and Esau, twins twins, born from the same mother, born at the same time. They were twins. Go figure. God chooses to love one and it says, hate the other. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. As Paul goes through, he he ends, just reflecting on the sovereign choice of God, he ends and breaks into a doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we have to realize and and stare in the face the reality that God God chooses his people. God is a choosing God, exercising his sovereign grace. This is a part of grace. And apart from this, we minimize grace because it gives us something to boast in. What we have is all of grace. Now third, our response. We looked at our problem we looked at God's solution. Finally, our response. Our response is obedience. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him beforehand that we should walk in them. In Romans 5, Paul unpacks the peace we have with God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the grace that we receive in Jesus Christ. In the second half of Romans 5, he talks about how Adam is our representative in the fall all of humanity's representative and Christ is our representative in salvation so we've received this just unmerited favor undeserved favor which is grace from God and then Romans 6 he asks this question what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound I mean if we get grace from sin why not just keep sinning this is what he's answering. He answers it there too, but he's answering it right here. Our response to grace is to walk in the grace that God has given us to obey. There are two intimately connected conceptions of grace in the Bible. The first is grace as God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's undeserved favor. Blessing that we do not deserve. And this comes in two forms. It comes in common grace and special grace. Common grace is what everyone receives, all of humanity receives. It's why we exist and we have technology and we don't all kill each other all the time. It gives us creation and flourishing. This is common grace. We also receive special grace, which is God's work of grace that leads to salvation. So common grace, non-salvation, special grace, salvation. So that's the first concept of God's grace, unmerited favor. But the second understanding of grace is the outworking of of his favor in the church and the Christian. It's the outworking of his favor. So we receive undeserved favor and then this works itself out in our lives and in the church. God doesn't just save us, he shapes us and matures us so that we might glorify him. But it takes the first, it takes saving grace to be able to have the second, this working grace. We don't work in order to be saved, we are saved in order to work. Mike Reeves, he writes, Holy living is not the awkward small print of the gospel, a catch hiding behind the good news of grace alone. Through this gospel, God acts to free us, not only from the horrifying future penalty of sin, but also from its present enslaving power. Grace alone is the most potent message of liberation, total liberation from hell and gradual liberation, even from its toxic but addictive foretaste. This is what Paul is writing about when he writes to Titus, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what grace does. And God has given us particular means by which we experience this grace. Most importantly, the church, His Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. I just want to briefly highlight the relationship between God's grace and the church as we conclude. Now, it can be easy to think of the church as something that we do. In fact, this is probably the most commonly held misconception of the church today, that we can do church. And there are lots of different ways to do church. How do you do church? I don't know. How do you do church? Well, this is how we do it. Church is something we do. But the church is an act of God's grace. It's because God has acted in history and continues to work in time that we are Christians that are brought together to be the church. This is grace. The church is something that God does, not something that we do. Carl Truman, he writes this, if we do church, then church depends on our strength. And the fulfillment of the promise of, say, Matthew sixteen eighteen, which is, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, then that promise depends on our strength. If we do church, it's, we will build our church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But such is not the case, Truman writes. God does it all. And therefore, we can rest assured that his promises will be made good by the end of time. What a comfort that is. It's God that says, I will build my church. He says, hey, good luck. You build your church. No, God is the one that builds his church. But I think our thinking, both as individuals and collectively, we can get off the rails a bit when we think of the church as the bride of Christ. This is a right and appropriate biblical category, but we tend to think of it in our terms. And when I married Christine, there was attraction. And there was much and even more now that I found desirable about her. And it seems that the same, shockingly, is true for her. But uh, <laughs> I'm happy about that. (laughs) So we have this idea, though, culturally, of marriage based on mutual attraction. But for the church to be Christ's bride is to highlight something else entirely. It is meant to show the great grace of God in rescuing us. Now, this picture emerges throughout the Bible, but we see it really clearly in, in the Old Testament Proverbs prophets. In Ezekiel 16, we see it. In in the life of Hosea, we see it. And in both cases, God's people are pictured as immoral and unfaithful, the worst of the worst. But God chooses to make this woman, this immoral, unfaithful woman, his bride. And everything that he has as the bridegroom is given to the bride. Again, Truman writes, when the church is described as the bride of Christ, the point is not that the Lord has made her his bride because she is beautiful and delightful. It's because she was not so. And despite her ugliness and filth, he has chosen to make her so. Brothers and sisters, marvel at the grace of God. And this only happens in Christ. The church doesn't exist as our response to God's grace. The church exists as a creation of God's grace in Christ. We gather together, even this morning, we gather in him. So this should affect how we think about church and how we prioritize church. We don't gather because it's the right thing to do. We don't gather because we ought to gather. We gather because this is how we get more of Christ. This is how we grow into Christ. The church is God's chosen means by which we behold Christ. And the same holds true for the preaching of God's word. Same holds true for baptism and the Lord's Supper and for prayer. All of these things—they're expressions of God's grace, by which we can experience His grace. So this is scratching the surface of grace alone. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. For though we were dead in our sins, through faith. You have made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. We rejoice in this grace that has made us alive, that has saved us, that continues to work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.